business is a game. We made it up. And if you can start to look at it through that lens, not to trivialize it, it's obviously a very important game, livelihoods matter, you know, I'm not trying to be glib when I say that, but anytime that we can look at something through the lens of it being a game, to me, you can start breaking it down. You can start looking at the fundamentals of the game. You can get some pattern recognition. You can, you can focus on the fundamentals. Caution. Listening to this podcast may motivate you to make positive changes in your life, identify ways to accelerate your career trajectory, and develop a path towards financial freedom. This is the Career Meets World podcast, and I'm your host, Edward Gorbis, and I've spent the last 10 years focused on helping thousands of people advance their career while in parallel teaching a secret recipe to reach financial independence. And I'm here to share the untold stories of successful people and teach thousands of listeners how to develop a growth mindset. Our minds are malleable, and everyone has the power to change their mindset through perseverance, dedication, and a passion for learning. So if you're ready to skyrocket your business and financial literacy, turn up the volume and let's dive right in. This is the Career Meets World podcast. On today's show, we have Travis Carson, who simply helps people execute under pressure. He's the founder of Market Force and the co-author of Diamond Goldfish. Both the company and the book help uncover how business is a game and provide a framework for deepening relationships. He's used the Market Force system to help build and run a variety of successful business ventures, ranging from home healthcare to energy efficient lighting to real estate syndication and development. He's since helped integrate Market Force's principal practices into the operation of hundreds of other businesses, including Colliers International, CBRE, Microsoft, WeWork, and Alaska Airlines. Hey, Travis, it is so good to have you on the show today. I'm super excited, partly because you're one of the most sought out executive coaches I've ever met. I had the great pleasure of working together with you at WeWork. You helped so many companies over the last six, seven years. You've worked with Fortune 500 companies all over the world, helping them establish an incredible team presence. Welcome to the show. We have a lot to unpack. Thank you for being here. It is absolutely my pleasure, Edward. That's probably the nicest introduction I've ever received. So thank you. And I just try to make everyone feel good, as do you. So Travis, look, I want to talk to you about a lot of different topics today. Your story is one that I believe will resonate with a lot of people, especially during the pandemic. There's a lot going on right now. People are going through a variety of different challenging moments with their families individually at work, wherever it might be. And you and I have talked about this a couple of times that although you have an incredibly successful business right now called Market Force, and you have a team of partners that you work with who are all incredible people, I'm curious if you could share a little bit about your story because that story is sometimes left untold, but we're gonna unpack it a little bit. So can you start there and help us understand what you're going through? I started a business with some people that I grew up with. Uh, playing tennis. Um, as a junior, we had all gone our separate ways, and I'm 48 now, so I would have been mid-30s at the time, and we had all, you know, done some other things and made some money, and we came together. I live in Tucson, Arizona, which is where my wife and I moved back to, and we started a business that was a development business, real estate development business. So I want everybody to just kind of start appreciating where this story is going to go. It was a real estate development business in the Southwest <laughs> in the mid 2000s. So for you know three to four years, it was incredible. But Edward, we were the bubble. So we were flipping houses and we were buying land, developing what's called the horizontal infrastructure. So uh, home builders build vertically, right? So they don't want to own the piece of property until it's ready to build vertically. So we were doing the horizontal infrastructure, all the utilities, 
all the riprap, all the uh, paving and doing all the horizontal infrastructure and then selling to home builders. So we were doing that as like longer term plays to try to make, you know, the big hits. And then we were flipping houses to keep the lights on on a day to day. And we were doing a good job of it, but we were the bubble. And so once the market started going, um, that, that period of time became essentially the most um, harrowing time of my career. So essentially two things started happening. Um, one of my partners was way more aggressive than me and felt like in the downturn, we could start buying and flipping more houses and doing you know, more deals. I was much more like, that doesn't feel good. Like looking back on it, nobody knew where it was gonna go but it sure didn't feel right to me. So I started to work through a process of trying to, um, you know, uh, separate with my partner at the time, but then simultaneously, once we separated, uh, me and my other partner who left with me, we were left with two properties. Uh, both properties uh, were very expensive and we put a lot of money into, and we had investors, so we'd been doing syndication. So we had millions of dollars of other people's money. And again, why wouldn't I be? I'll just be honest. I had a lot of my own money in there, personal wealth. Uh, my father had a lot of his wealth in there. Um, and to this day, I think one of the most incredible things that we pulled off, I hate to say I, but I was in the lead on it because I was uh, a lawyer. So I was handling a lot of the negotiations. We got one of those two properties sold to Toll Brothers. Uh, that actually... Uh, had it mean that I didn't go through personal bankruptcy. The other property we did lose. And the other property uh, did have my father's money in it, not as much, did have my own money in it, not as much. And we had millions of dollars of other people's money. And it was horrible. It was an eight month process of the bank, you know, and all of us trying to figure it out and just every day and it was a grind and it was terrible. Um, it was the first year of my first daughter's life. I don't remember it very well because I would basically just wake up every day and stare at the phone and wait for the bank to call. Uh, it was really tough. So, you know, to, you know, if it's okay, I'll just carry that to today. I think when the pandemic hit, I had an immediate reaction. I wasn't going to be in the eye of the storm this time. To your point, I'm very privileged now to have great companies that I work with, but it wasn't going to impact my business in the same way. But you know, 12, 13 years ago, I was in the eye of the storm. And I remembered, I started to really reconnect to how horrible that was and how every day just felt overwhelming. And nobody was really calling me because everybody's dealing with their own stuff. So I really went into this mode of like, I think I can really help people. I think I have some perspective here. So me and my company, we really indexed hard into trying to help people through this. But it's only out of what I went through. And I think the thing that I really learned during that period is that nothing lasts forever. And I know that sounds really glib, but in the middle of it, I was like, this is terrible. As soon as the bank was foreclosed on and taken back, I'll never forget going out into the backyard of my house and looking up at the sky and having that connection to, wow, sky is still blue, world is still turning, my life is not over, I can bounce. So I don't know if that, is useful at all, but that was my experience from 12, 13 years ago, up, you know, a little bit into present day. Certainly very helpful. It actually reminds me of a separate conversation we've had before around this idea behind the difference between a weather pattern and a storm. Uh -huh. And oftentimes recessions, uh, I think we could both categorize them as being really disruptive, horrible storms, earthquakes, whatever natural disaster we want to equate it to. That was 2008 for you. You had gone through this tumultuous time with your partners and clearly learned a lot. And what came out of that is the beautiful part of it. And as you started this company to purely help people and purely help teams and organization foster stronger relationship together and build cohesity. What was that transition like where you went from realizing I'm flipping houses to bankruptcy on this property? And then this inflection point came to mind where I'm going to go after with a couple folks and really help people out um, as they develop their organizations. Yeah. The beauty for me is I've really 
only ever been doing this work, Edward. You, you know, you and I met two, three years ago. I'm, again, I'm 48. I started learning the core of this material when I was 19 years old. So it's almost been 30 years. My whole business career has been around trying to do exactly what you said, and you're saying it really well, and I'm probably going to steal your language and give you no credit because it's, it's great. But I've always been somebody who's looked at one of, I think, the hardest problems on the planet, which is human behavior, and tried to simplify it, knowing full well that people are not that prescriptive. So there's not going to be like easy answers here. So uh, the other businesses that I've had the privilege of owning and running, uh, I've always been doing this work. So what happened for me after the real estate uh, company, you know, after all of that ended, is I, I finally said, you know what, I'm going to start doing the work that I've always been doing, like not, not through the vehicle of another company, like the operations of another company. I'm going to start turning it into you know, my, it's the thing I'm super passionate about. I'm going to start doing it like explicitly as, as opposed to implicitly. Now, that being said, I think the experience that I got doing it myself inside my own companies was invaluable. Like, you know, it's hard to just jump from not knowing anything to sometimes just running forward with your passion. But I know that in those other businesses, I was always like, okay, I need to learn how to hire and fire and put teams together, performance manage, uh, understand motivations, work through adversity, do all of those intangibles. And so I got all that experience doing it in, a diff in different businesses, even the real estate business. I was ready 12 years ago to, to make a declaration and go, this is what I'm gonna start doing. And so I started piecing together this business. And that's a really important point to bring up is that oftentimes we have a variety of different jobs through our career, our experiences, doesn't matter what age group you're in. And along the way, we start to identify different things or different topics or passions that we really, really care about. And for you, again, it was purely helping people. But I didn't know this. You had been doing this for about 30 years, as you said. And you essentially mastered it to the extent that anyone can master anything, but you were able to really control this kind of information that you put together. You synthesized it in a way that has helped so many different companies now, and it's been infectious to see how you've been able to help so many people. What exactly are you helping people? How do you tap into the human psychology as it relates to building identity as an individual or building an identity as a company kind of reveal some of that secret sauce of yours. <laughs> sure. Well, the, your question is great. And, and in no way am I trying to be argumentative, but we actually took it from a slightly different angle, which is a little bit less through the psychology and more through the biology. And the idea there is, is that um, when human beings feel pressure, we tend to not be the best versions of ourselves. So even my story about what was happening, you know, 12 years ago with the real estate venture I was in, you know, I wasn't going to die, Edward. Like the worst thing that was going to happen there is I was going to go bankrupt. But my body was treating that situation like it was a life or death situation. And so one of the biggest things that we're trying to unlock for ourselves, for others, for all of us, is that business is a game. We made it up. And if you can start to look at it through that lens, not to trivialize it, it's obviously a very important game, livelihoods matter, you know, I, I'm not trying to be glib when I say that, but anytime that we can look at something through the lens of it being a game, to me, you can start breaking it down. You can start looking at the fundamentals of the game. You can get some pattern recognition. You can, you can focus on the fundamentals. What a, you know, great coach speak from sports, right? Like, well, we got to get back to the basics. You can start looking at the building blocks of like what helps, you know, real, uh, you know, people really excel in different games or different performances. So essentially, the man that I learned from who has passed away in the last few years, he had started on this journey of building out what we call frameworks or maps. So think about it this way, Edward, a map doesn't invent territory. Like a map doesn't invent the mountain, it expresses the territory. And so it shows you the mountain. 
I mean, people in business are going to make it to the top of the mountain because they have ambition, they have drive, they're going to sort it out. But if you have a map, you might get there a little quicker. So he had a series of maps about how to help teams come together, how to help them communicate better, how to help them work through adversity. So he had some core maps in place. I took those and started to run with them, worked them into some other businesses. And then as I was working in my other businesses, when I would get to a situation, Edward, where there wasn't a map that I already knew from him, I would try to both handle the situation I was in, but I would try to really break it down to what am I doing? Are there certain like fundamental principles that I'm working off of so that I might be able to personally replicate this in the future, but I also might be able to turn around and share some of these underlying principles or fundamentals with others. So I became what I would say is a mapper if you will. And so we ended up now with what we call market force, which is a series of 36 different frameworks, all designed to help people essentially be excellent under pressure in the game of business. And so they've all got different titles. They're all kind of designed to attack different things. Are we doing it perfectly? Nope. Have we covered everything? Of course not. But again, trying to take this game and pull it apart a little bit and then help people piece it back together in a way slow. That's a really interesting way to put it. Might not be the sexiest way to call yourself a mapper, but the maps themselves are so powerful. And to be very candid with everyone is that they've helped me, right? I feel like I've grown so much since I met yourself a couple of years ago and a lot of people on your team that I've worked with at Market Force. But that being said, these maps are so useful because when we approach the game with a set of instruction systems, this map, whatever we call it, yep. there is such an upside to what we can accomplish. And it really changes our approach, our focus, our attitude, our effort going into a situation. And that's something that I personally didn't have early on in my career. A lot of 22 year olds aren't taught this yeah. in college or coming out of college, yeah. they might not know this. So if we look at the world of people, let's, let's call it coming right out of college and we cut it a blank slate for them. What would be your recommendation as they step into their first or maybe even second job as they are on day one of that role? How should they approach becoming successful at that company? I think if we look at our careers, there's three primary skill sets that as players in the game of business, we want to be getting good at. There are technical skills. So when you go into a business, that business is obviously in an industry and there are certain technical things about the industry that are super important to understand. So if you're going to be a lawyer, you got to learn how to write contracts. If you're going to be a commercial real estate broker, you've got to understand how to, you know, what deferred maintenance means and you got to you know, understand how to put leases together. There's very technical things you have to learn, okay? Number two on that list would be things we call business skills. So business skills cut horizontally. So a technical skill cuts vertically, a business skill cuts horizontally. So things like public presentation. Public presentation would help you if you're a lawyer or a commercial real estate broker. So they travel between industries. So public presentation, reading financial statements, meeting management, certain skills that it doesn't matter what industry you're in are going to be helpful. Here's the third one. The third one are human dynamic skills. The third one are things like working through adversity. It's things like um, communication, leadership development. It's all of the intangibles. So a good visual is technical cuts vertically, business cuts horizontally, and human dynamics wraps around the whole thing, okay? And what I would say is that one of the reasons that I think for the success that I've had in my career, and I've been, you know, we've been sharing here that, you know, I've had the downs too, but I've also had some ups, <laughs> okay? And I, I, to this day, will tell anybody, anybody that one of the bigger reasons that I think I've, I've had the success that I've had is because I was learning human dynamic skills when most people my age were not. So again, I was introduced to this when I was 19 years old. Most people, when they first go into a business, and rightly so, need to be focused on the technical expertise. You've got to get good at your profession. But the sooner that you 
can start focusing on business and human dynamic skills, meaning that you're not going to be somebody that gets so technically focused but can't do the other things that are going to have your, your uh, career take off. The sooner we can do that, the better. So, you know, one of the goals that I have in my life is to eventually get this material that we have into like an MBA program so that we can start getting to people earlier. Because most of the time people are not taught technical, or I'm sorry, human dynamic skills until they get into some kind of leadership role. And then it's a real hard moment because everything they've learned technically is not helping them in a leadership role. And so literally those are many times my clients and I have to start explaining to them that once you're going from production to leadership, you're actually making a career change. And most people don't understand that because they're at the same company, but it's because they're looking through the lens of technical. So the summary on that one, Edward, is, you know, get good at technical. You have to be, right? Like you want to excel there. Invest in the business. And then as soon as you feel like you have the capacity, whether it's market force or not, I mean, this isn't like a, you know, I'm not trying to promote it. Of course, I'm biased. I think it's a really good one. But as soon as you can, start looking at mechanisms for how you organize your, how you organize people, how you work through adversity. Find something you're going to start hanging your hat on because it's that skill set that is typically the difference between good and great in the gaming business. That's so right. And Again, going back to my own experiences, I studied engineering and the majority of my classes in college were predominantly engineering. And I always wondered, why do I have to take elective classes on communication or interpersonal skills? It felt irrelevant. Yes. Well, it's actually more relevant than anything else because in every single company we work with, we work with other people and we work with other departments and there's so much cross-functional interaction that is imperative for our own success and our own perception, right? As you said, this is all a game and how people perceive us is arguably more important than our pure technical performance. Yeah, especially as you get to become more senior, which I know everybody listening is aiming for, you know, serious roles, executive roles, founding their own companies. I've had the privilege of working with enough C-suite people and when we talk about these issues of like business versus technical versus human dynamic skills, one of the things they'll say is often, okay, at, at say a C-suite level is they'll go, oh, wow, I can't even do the technical anymore. Like my job isn't to do the technical. My job is to hire the people, put them together in a way that they can optimize the technical, but I can't even do it, especially if they're a CIO with how quickly, obviously that, you know, technology changes. So it's, it's, I think, I think in a lot of ways, Edward, what you just said is the point. We're not trying to say human dynamics is necessarily more important. We just want it at the table. And most of the time people do exactly what you are saying, which is they over index to the business and technical, they can't do the intangibles and then their career tops out and they don't know why. And they keep trying to add more technical expertise trying to fix the problem with the thing that isn't going to unlock that potential. So if I'm a listener right now, I'm either super interested, a little bit concerned, and thinking about, oh crap, I understand the technical acumen of what I'm doing right now, but I'm really curious about how do I go down understanding human behavior, human biology, and work better with my colleagues, especially since we're now working remotely and a lot of people are interacting in ways that are completely different, what would be your recommendation and tip and kind of helping you take the first step to step outside your comfort zone, let's call it that, and really understand, okay, if I'm an engineer, if I'm a lawyer and I'm not used to some of these like more common practices how should they start? What can they read? What can they learn? What can they listen to? I think the first thing is, is that you want, if you can, if you're ready, want to start putting your mind into a space of curiosity. Because if you're not really authentically curious about human dynamics, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be a slog and it's going to feel like manipulation. Like, oh, I'm learning these tips to 
be able to manipulate other people. And I tell people like all the time that as you learn material like this on pattern recognition for behavior under pressure, it can be weaponized. Like there are people who use it, you know, in ways to try to get ahead. So, you know, I can't change what's in people's hearts. Not suggesting anybody here is, but I think it's important just to acknowledge that this is a different domain than, you know, business or technical, where you can kind of go in through your head. This has, you have to go in through your heart, right? You have to go in through empathy. You have to go in through a genuine curiosity about human behavior and what it takes to be excellent, okay, when the chips are down, right? Like, I, I mean, even look at my story from 13 years ago, you, you know, nobody's perfect. I mean, I, I'm surrounded by this material and have been for 30 years. And I tell people all the time, like, I am not proud of how I handled the downturn when I was in the eye of the storm 13 years ago. I'm proud of how I handled it with our investors. I was very forthright. I was on the phone with them every day. I was looking people in the eye. I was telling them we were probably going to lose their money. I've always been proud of that. Never been proud of how I handled it with my wife and my first daughter. So even in this downturn, I made a stronger commitment to helping there. I digress. If you're going to lean into this, I would recommend you start through a mindset of curiosity and through your heart. From there, you know, start looking around. I mean, look, we have a book. The book really goes through the human biology. It's called The Diamond Goldfish, and, it, you know, that you can break in there. Um, anywhere that you, you know, Seth Godin has really good things on just understanding, you know, different people. Ray Dalio uh, talks all the time about operating from principles, and you know, looking through the lens of like human dynamics in his firm. So it won't be that hard, honestly, Edward. And I, what I would say is once you get a toehold in, it's gonna start uh, being quite fun because you know, I've been around this material for 30 years. I can't find a bottom to the well because there isn't like a point at which you go, okay, I've got human beings figured out. We're way more complex than that. So I think it's more about getting in the game, getting onto the journey, than it is about thinking that, you know, you're going to solve it by, you know, jumping into one course or something like that. It's more about, you know, making it part of your practice as a player. Absolutely. And I actually appreciate your digression a lot because it demonstrates a lot of self-awareness and recognition that there will be challenging moments in all our lives that are probably going to happen again. Whatever comes in front of us, we can't predict it. We just have to be okay with it. And with that being said, you recognize during the last moment, you might not have given enough time to your family, but you chose to do that differently, which is clearly indicative of you being able to continuously lead from the heart. Mm. And that's what human dynamics is. That's how it comes naturally. And it's not weaponized. It's used for good. And a lot of people out there are fully capable of doing this. This yeah. isn't rocket science. No. It's not technical. It's no. a belief system. It's a map, like you mentioned. And there are so many different tools to help people. If you go back 30 years ago, yeah. When you first started. Yeah. Who who were some of those people that really assisted you in getting you off on the right foot in your career and your journey as you're contemplating law, et cetera, and kind of some of those other avenues that you could have taken? Yeah, my story is an interesting one in that um, I met the man who started teaching me the core of this material that we now call market force because my father divorced my mother. And then about a month later, quit his job and started his own company. Now, I know this is on a podcast and, you know, people will uh, appreciate that I'm trying to be an open book here, but I'll just be very honest about it. My parents had a terrible marriage. They're great people. Their marriage didn't work. They've both, uh, they've been divorced now and they've been married, you know, both have remarried for like 20 years or I guess 30 years now. Uh, so everything's fine. But at the time, that was a lot of change, Edward. My dad, my entire childhood, had always talked about how he didn't like his job and wanted to pursue his own passion, right? And then, you know, both my parents complained about each other. So my dad had complained about my mother and his job kind of my whole childhood. And then all of a sudden, it made some changes. And so my inclination 
was to say, well, what's changed? And he said, well, I've met a business coach. Now you have to appreciate that 30 years ago, there was no industry called business coaching. Okay, even now, I sometimes get teased when I tell people I'm a business coach, they go, oh, that means you're unemployed. <laughs> Which I think is hilarious, by the way. But um, at the time, 30 years ago, no industry. So I was like a business coach. So I was really intrigued where I was like, what is a business coach? And then why is it impacting your personal life? So I went and met this man and he started drawing, drawing some stuff on a dry erase board and started showing me some of these things that we're now talking about, about human behavior and adversity and what it does to people and how people tend to shrink and kind of go into a very survivalistic mode when there's a lot of pressure and that the better way to play is, as you've been saying, kind of with an open heart and to give more when there's pressure as opposed to try to take more. And it started to reverse some of the things that were intuitive, intuitively I was starting to grow into as I was getting older. And so it actually changed the whole trajectory of my life, my career, because I got introduced to this stuff and I, I actually didn't go to law school out of undergrad. I, I, I started working with him and I got good enough at parroting this, these frameworks that I was at a very young age going with him to different client meetings and we didn't have video conference back in the day, so we had to meet with people in person. And um, I was good enough at it, but you know, I, I hope anyway that I've got some self-awareness pretty quickly after about two, two and a half years, I realized that I didn't have personal experience. So a lot of our clients, I was even starting to get my own clients, but they would ask me like, well, how would, how would you do this? And I started going, I don't really know. Like I was able to talk about the theory of it, but I didn't know, I had no personal experience of hiring somebody, right? I'd never been in that position before. So I couldn't answer their questions. And that concerned me. One of our clients had just started a lighting company. So energy efficient lighting. So going in and doing retrofitting of existing buildings, he was starting to grow the business pretty quickly and he wasn't a great operator. And I looked at what he was doing and I saw an opportunity and I said, you know what? I am passionate about this material that I've learned, how to put teams together, all the stuff you've been saying, Edward. And I thought, I don't know anything about lighting, but I feel like if I could take what I've learned and get on in, in with him, that I could start to practice and hone my skills around operations. So between the man that I learned market force from originally, whose name was John Cundiff, who invested a ton in me when I was super young and had no skills, like no technical skills, no business skills, like he just, he let me follow him around and like, you know, was very um, gracious in terms of his time and letting me like stand in front of his clients. They weren't my clients, his clients and share. So I needed somebody who would give me that space. And then, then I had Randy Decker, who was the man that gave me an opportunity to partner with him in the development of this lighting company. And Randy was the one that really helped me hone, I think, my business skills. So John was kind of my mentor around human dynamics, obviously with what I do now with, with Market Force, but Randy was like, he was a lawyer, a former lawyer. So the way that he could think through issues and negotiate contracts and those types of things, it was fascinating, like to watch how he could navigate through different issues that we were dealing with. So at about 28 years old, I ended up realizing I didn't love lighting. I'd gotten a lot of the experience I wanted first time through of like running a team and those types of things. So I was fortunate enough to be able to move on from that business. That's when I got my law degree and my MBA and I got them together, but I got them for very specific purposes. So I got the law degree because I wanted the business skill of being able to negotiate, spot issues, work through things like that. I pursued my MBA back to what we were discussing earlier that I challenged myself and I challenge all of your listeners here. Like I was down a road with market force, but sometimes you get down a road and it might not be the best road. So I got my MBA mostly to see other ways of organizing people and building team cohesiveness. I didn't want to carry on down this road with market force without looking at what else was in the universe because I felt like that would be potentially short-sighted. So I got my MBA to challenge myself to look outside the box a little bit. Now, 
I didn't find something I liked better. <laughs> so there's no doubt about that. But I did push myself to see if I could find something that, that I felt could work better for actually owning and operating a business. So John Cundiff, Randy Decker, law school and MBA, those have been like the big things that I've done. One was more human dynamics, one was more um, business skills, and then the, the law degree and the MBA, what was nice for me is I went in with purpose. Whereas I think if I had gone to law school right out of undergrad, I would have gone in with no purpose other than I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I think I would have had a very different experience of law school. But fortunately, I'd met John and he had helped me kind of orient to what I was passionate about, which was operating businesses and playing this game of business. And so that really helped me through my, you know, through my 20s and early 30s. It's so unique. You can know people for a couple of years and still there's so much more to discover about them. I too had a revelation that I did not care about energy efficiency and or lighting. I had actually worked at Pacific Gas and Electric Company, which is a utility company in California, managing energy efficiency programs. It taught me a lot. It taught me a lot about kind of the technical side of it, but more so about human dynamics and working cross-functionally within such a large company. And similarly to you, I realized I needed to pick up the business acumen. I needed to talk to people outside of my domain and learn how do I become even more successful and interact with people more effectively? How do I communicate better? So I went down that same road. I got an MBA. I leaned into a lot of different people and sought out mentors, similar to John and Randy were for you. And again, a lot of people starting out in their careers or even deep into their career, it's always important to learn and take on new information and, and connect with people. And it could be through a variety of different mediums. Again, it could be books, could be podcasts, can be one-on-one -on -one conversations. There are different things that are mentors in your life. What do you think is kind of the epitome of a mentor? What should they be doing for you? And what can you really make of a conversation with them when you're talking to them one-on-one -on, -one on some sort of cadence? How do you really extract really good value, but really be a good person to them as well? I think people who want to be mentors love to share lessons that they've learned, but they'd also like to see you activate. It doesn't mean you have to do what the mentor says, or you have to agree with the mentor, but to me, like if it just becomes an idle conversation over time, it's going to feel philosophical almost. And I don't think people who get into mentoring are looking for that from their side. The, the mentee may be looking for that, but the mentor would like to see that they're getting a little bit of a return on investment, that the person is actively trying something out. Again, you don't have to like agree with it. You know, I tell people all the time that I've had the privilege of mentoring of like, look, my only expectation here is that you'll try something out. You'll do like if we get to the end of the meeting and you say that you're going to try something, my expectation is you're going to come back next time and you're going to share with me what you learned. I want to learn too. But if you come back and go, no, nah, I didn't make time for it. I'm going to start to lose interest pretty quickly because that doesn't feel like a great use of my time. And I think people who are at a level where they're ready to mentor other people, they don't tend to have a lot of time. So they want to see something coming out of it that shows that person is pushing things forward. So, you know, I guess it would be one of those where I would encourage people to, I know it's going to sound terrible, but as much as you're selfishly trying to learn something as a mentee, also put yourself in the in the shoes of the mentor that they're you know investing time make it a good use of their time essentially what i've learned is mentorship is really a two-way street where sure. as a mentee you're getting a ton of value but the mentor wants some sort of gratification that they were able to assist you help you develop and it becomes this perpetual relationship where you're both helping each other and gaining value in different ways. And that's the beauty of being a mentor or a mentee. Yeah. Well, see, I, see, I agree with you on that. I think it's, it's reciprocal. It's got, it's got, now look, we all know this, the best way to learn is to teach. 
<laughs> so when mentors get into mentoring, I think uh, something happens for them as well that is very beneficial, which is if I'm going to suggest or share a story or make a recommendation to somebody else, I need to be doing that myself. So there's a bit of an accountability piece that starts to come up for the mentor anyway. Like they're sharing something or recommending something. It's like, oof, I'm not doing that. I should be doing that myself. So I think there's something good there, but that's where in a lot, like, you know, I, I have a couple of um, adult children of executives that I work with where they've said, hey, you know, like what happened for you, Travis, can you meet with my son who is 17 and just start sharing some of this methodology with them so that they can get it early? Because a lot of times I meet people who are like, darn it, I wish I had learned this <laughs> when I was younger. So they want to immediately give it to their children, which is awesome. And I always say yes, because I know what it did for me in my life. And so I'm going to say yes there. But the ones that are tough are where I have somebody showing up and they'll say, oh, I didn't have time. And I'm always very kind of rigorous with people to say that, no, you didn't make the time. And that's going to start telling me through your actions that these conversations don't feel as valuable as you're telling me. And that's going to start to make me not be as interested in sharing some of my stories or tools. There's one final piece that I want to ask you about there. And it kind of ties everything we're talking about right now, which is, Earlier on, you mentioned that as individuals grow within a company, they have an opportunity to potentially become a manager. But oftentimes, there's a very hard transition between doing an individual contributor role to being a manager. And to me, what I've learned is there is a fundamental difference between a good manager or a good leader. And leaders often couple the necessary management skills and the acumen that comes with it but they also want to be a mentor and they want to see people rise on their team and they create this kind of rising tide across either their team, their organization, the whole company. What have you seen from some of the most effective leaders who have kind of married this idea of mentorship into their work and what have they done? What makes them so successful? What a great question. Well, the first thing that comes to mind is just to distinguish a little bit that when you get into leadership, or management, there, there appear to be five primary tools. So one is consulting, which is where you tell everybody what to do. One is training, where you might show people like a framework or a methodology. The third is uh, mentoring, which is where you share stories. The fourth is coaching, which is where you ask questions. And then the last one is, facili is facilitation, where you kind of go, look, folks, we need to get from A to B, but I want you to tell me how we're going to get there. So the first thing I would say is I have seen that great leaders are able to move on that spectrum. The ones that I find are struggling a little bit more stick and stay on one of those tools. So they might do a ton of consulting, just telling everybody what to do, and then they don't recognize they're building um, a situation where everybody's kind of dependent on them as the leader. But by the same token, I've seen some leaders who only coach or only mentor for, you know, in this example here. And when you only mentor, sometimes people don't really feel like they're getting a whole lot of value. So they start to not feel like the leader is, you know, delivering for them. So I think the first thing is, is that when we get into leadership or, or management, it, you know, either, either level where you have direct reports is to start to understand that you are now in an environment where you can't stick and stay on one tool. You have to be able to move around and provide different things to different people and move those people through different journeys. Some people will respond a lot better to mentorship. Some people want training and then they don't want to hear your story. They just want to be able to go. So I think some of it is just being able to um, mentally start to flex through different tools that way. That, that's the primary thing, Edward, and I don't know if I've answered your question, to be honest, but I feel like that's the primary thing that I would encourage is just have that mental flexibility to move across different tools as opposed to sticking and staying on one. I love that because ultimately there's these five pillars, and if you as a leader can oscillate between one of the five and really figure out, all right, my team or this specific individual needs this lever pulled today. There you go. See, to me, what's happening there is 
people are in that journey of being curious what does my team need right now you know what we're under the gun we need some consulting i've seen this issue before folks here's what we need to do but maybe there are some times where it's a little bit more like hey we're here right now we need to be in this spot in a month you folks tell me how we're going to get there and what that does is it keeps people learning growing um feeling like they are getting value from the leader but also having space to kind of grow and learn on their own all of those things start getting mixed in in that moment but i think it starts going back to maybe where i'll you know kind of anchor it in is you know being curious about these things if you're not curious you're going to be more like all right i have my methodology i'm going to stick and stay here and that tends to be pretty limiting has been my experience absolutely the key there is curiosity as you exactly. said Look, as much as I want to kind of parade yeah. more questions in front of you, uh, I do want to make sure that we wrap on a very strong and fun note. And oh, we're, we're going to bring you into our hot seat where, oh. where we're going to ask you some fun and very like personal questions to learn sure. more about Travis. So Travis, are you ready? I hope so. All right, I'm ready. I'm a little nervous. Let's do this. So Travis, you might not have known this, but I'm to an avid fan of tennis. I grew up playing it. I watched a ton of tournaments. I'm curious, who are your two favorite tennis players? One male, one female. What is it about them and their work ethic that you really appreciate? Sure. So uh, favorite female is Venus Williams. And while Serena's gone on to be the more successful of the Williams sisters, Venus changed the game. Like when she came onto the scene, she was just um, a force of nature in terms of how much, uh, you know, harder she hit the ball. And, and anytime somebody changes the game, that's always going to like um, catch my attention. On the men's side, it's always been uh, Roger Federer. And Federer, I mean, Federer changed the game too, but I think one of the things that makes Federer in my mind just amazing kind of goes back to what we were talking about with leadership is you know he played a certain style when he was younger and as he's gotten older he can't stay out there as long with you know as long in these long matches so he's gotten more aggressive he stands you know maybe all your listeners aren't super familiar like you and me with tennis but he actually stands really close to the baseline and he he's not out there to have long rallies he's out there to end the point so he either hits a winner and the point's over or he makes a mistake and then he's got to move on to the next point. He's doing that because as he's getting older, he knows that he can't win in the same way that he used to be able to win. So one of the things that I just love about Roger Federer is longevity and his willingness to get curious about changing his game over his career. I think that's amazing. It's awesome. Two incredibly good tennis players, such a different game, uh, and they both impact in many positive ways. What I like about it is that they're both able to adjust, shift, have that element of curiosity throughout their careers. And that's very much applicable to even the corporate setting or any industry that we might go into. Any that game, any game, right? Yep. Exactly. It's all about mindset. One final one for you. You're living right now in Tucson, Arizona, right. and you have an abundance of space. You've afforded that for yourself. Once this whole pandemic is over, where would you take your family? And if you could spend six months there, what's the one place in the world you'd go to and why? Vancouver. Interesting. Yeah. Why Vancouver? I'm in love with any places on this planet where you can see water and snow at the same time. And I've, I've been very lucky to, to go up to Vancouver a number of times for, for different things with clients, and I've never been able to take my family there. I, I shouldn't say never been able. I've never taken my family there. And so through the pandemic, you know, it's, been, it's actually something, Edward, I've been thinking about because I travel in a normal world all the time for business. My family and I don't travel a ton, and I think some of that is because I don't like to travel because I travel so much for business. But through the pandemic, it's kind of had me stand back and go, now, wait a minute, I've gone to a lot of different places, but my kids haven't, and my wife hasn't been able to go with me. And so Vancouver is actually the place that we've actually talked about going. 
and going to some of the little islands out, you know, just off of Vancouver where you have to take, you know, a ferry or a boat or something like that. It's some of the prettiest uh, area in the world that I've ever been. And then just, just the ability to be able to be in, in water and look at mountains and see snow on top of the mountains, like I, you know, Seattle is another place. But Vancouver for me just stands out in that way. And I'd love, I'm going to love to be able to take my wife and my four children there at some point. Can't wait to hear about that story. Vancouver's a great place. And if you get the time, definitely check out Victoria on Vancouver Island. Yes. There are so many beautiful things to see there. It's calm, it's relaxing. Um, and truthfully, I would challenge you to take your family on more vacations and I'm putting in a plug for them. Yeah. Partly because I was very, very lucky. Uh, being an only child, my parents chose to invest a lot of their money into traveling early on. Mm. They grew up in the Soviet Union where you didn't have the opportunity to travel all the time. So they made the decision to take me on a lot of vacations. Mm -hmm. And that taught me a lot about culture, taught me a lot about different people. And it certainly enabled me to be a little bit more successful in business. So again, well I love it. I love it. I appreciate it. <laughs> so next time we have you on, we'll talk about that trip, what you learned, what was the takeaway with your family. I'm ready. So Great. Travis, again, it's so much fun chatting with you. You have so much knowledge to share. You have this incredible curiosity and zest for life and figuring out how do I help people? How do I mentor consistently? And how do I bring out the best in people? So thank you for that. And it was great having you on. Well, it was my pleasure. Thank you very much, Edward. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the Career Meets World podcast. I would love to get to meet you. There are a couple of ways we can connect. You know I love my LinkedIn. Simply search for Career Meets World or Edward Gorbis and feel free to connect. Second is via Instagram at Career Meets World. And third is through our website. I have a special spot for you full of fun, free resources. All you have to do is go to careermeetsworld.com, subscribe to our newsletter, and we'll provide you the free resources to help you boost your career and reach financial freedom. And if this podcast was helpful to you in any way, please consider rating and reviewing this podcast on Apple Podcasts. This helps us help more people. Simply tap the rate with five stars and leave a sentence with what you liked about the podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. Remember, strengthening your growth mindset is your ticket to success. I'm Edward Gorbis, and we'll catch you on next week's episode.